Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I know authors who make millions a year self-publishing for super small niches. Writing is no longer the purview of the elite, nor has it been so for some time. The advent of many new and emerging technologies has allowed anyone with a strong sense of story and a good idea to turn their passion into something that can be enjoyed by others. Publishers still have their place, and they always will do, but they're no longer essential. The democratisation of writing is huge. It's seen the birth of many subgenres. If you want to write about it, there's probably someone out there who wants to read about it. And now you can access those communities of readers like never before. But don't let the idea of democratisation fool you into thinking that any Tom, Dick or Harry can suddenly create the next bestseller. As we've often said on this show, there's writing and then there's the business of writing, two sides of the same coin. That's why today I'm bringing you the fascinating and invaluable insights of Ricardo Fayette, co-founder of self-publishing marketplace Readsy and author of How to Market a Book overperform in a crowded market. Chapter 1. Business Mode Over the years, Ricardo has sent out newsletters aimed at arming aspiring writers with all the knowledge they need to sell books. There are now so many places you can go to shout about your work, a dizzying number of platforms, in fact. And while that's great, it can be overwhelming, it can become a full-time job. If you're feeling like that right now, then what Ricardo has to say should quieten your mind a little. But before we get into all of that, let's lay out the difference between the art and craft of writing and the business of writing. For me, art and craft uh, is about writing for you, right? To to satisfy an internal necessity uh, of writing or to produce some form of art that you consider um, is necessarily a beautiful or that basically satisfies something internal. The moment it turns into business is when you're trying to sell it, because at that point, you're not, you're not looking to satisfy something within yourself, uh, but you're looking to satisfy not a necessity, not a need, but a, a, leisure, uh, a leisure among readers. So you're looking to create something that readers are going to want to read, whether it's to learn about something new, if it's nonfiction, or to be entertained, if it's a story. And at that point, I think there's a shift in that in 90% 90 of the cases, you need to do some research around what you're going to write, what readers are actually interested in in your genre, what the tropes are, uh, so that you write something to market. I know that it's it's an expression that a lot of people don't like, but I do believe in it. Like you're writing for a market. There are pre-established market, pre-established genres out there with clear tropes and a lot of readers who are looking for those tropes. This doesn't mean that you can't just write something based on your internal necessity that turns out to be a bestseller because it hits all the tropes. But uh, generally that happens when A, you're extremely lucky or B, you've actually done a lot of reading in the genre and hitting those tropes comes as an instinct to you. But if that's not the case, then you definitely need to to do some research and, and write something to market. Can I ask you about social media because we might assume that social media is perhaps a great way in which to market our book but you don't necessarily share that do you yeah i'm i'm ambivalent uh, towards social media um because 
I think that their importance is overplayed by a lot of, uh, especially agents and publishers, you know, they're going to tell authors, yeah, you're going to need to be on social media to, you know, to build your fan base on there. Uh, there are some myths uh, saying that agents are not even going to look at your query unless you have 10,000 followers or whatever imaginary number on Twitter or Facebook. And these are all myths, really. Um, what agents or publishers are going to look at is the writing. It's the book. If it's nonfiction around a certain topic, then yeah, they might start looking at platform. But for fiction, they're not really going to care about platform. For traditional publishing, it's true that social media is a little bit more important because the traditional publisher is going to do a lot of the outbound marketing. And the main responsibility of the author is going to be interacting with the fans that the publisher is going to bring to them. Uh, and so creating a presence for them uh, on social media, interacting with them, on doing virtual blog tours, etc. So it's true that for traditional publishing, they can have a little bit more importance. For indie publishing, I think social media can be a huge waste of time uh, because a lot of authors are going to interpret that as, ah, uh, when I'm launching my book, I need to post on Twitter every day that my book is out there. I need to post on Facebook. Um, I need to post on LinkedIn, etc. But the thing is, you're only going to reach your friends on these social networks. And you can reach your friends with a text message or those friends should already know that you're launching a book really. So you're often shouting into a void and becoming very annoying with like, buy my book, buy my book, here's my book. Whereas cultivating an actual following on social media takes a lot more time and it takes, it requires the author really, really enjoying the social media, being an active part of the community on there probably before they write the book. So for me, social media is something organic. If you're going to be great at social media, if you're going to be able to build this community on a social medium, that's going to happen organically. It's not something you should try to force or uh, build into as a, as a marketing strategy. It's just going to happen naturally. And if it's not going to happen naturally, uh, because it's not something you can force, it shouldn't really be part of your marketing plan. Social media advertising now that's a whole different thing and that's definitely valuable uh but like posting on twitter facebook etc i think a lot of authors get hung up on there and think that they should be doing it or actually spend time doing it when it's producing zero results yes it's interesting if you put a tweet out or put something on facebook typically nobody cares you know you just you may as well be just shouting in a forest with nobody around it's not particularly productive i guess you may feel that you have to have some form of presence it, it can also be a, a tool to inform you rather than it simply be a broadcast mechanism for writers but your advice is is very much the traditional build your email list route build your web presence that for you is the key to marketing isn't it yeah for me i mean building an email list is probably the easiest thing for for the vast majority of people this is not to say that you cannot build your community. Like you need to build a community somewhere for, for your readers, because if you're just relying on the stores, I, I always give this advice. Like if your book first book sells 10,000 copies and you don't have a mailing list or a presence or form for your readers, then when your second book comes out, no one is going to tell those 10,000 people who bought your first one that the second book is out. No one's going to do it for you. Uh, Amazon might send an email to a very small percentage of them, like or other retailers might send an email to a small percentage of them. They might find out by looking for your name a year later, but really no one's going to do that job of telling them, hey, my second book is out. You enjoy the first one, go buy the second one. No one's going to do that for you. So you need a way to do that. Uh, the easiest way, and I think the most effective is by having a mailing list. So if you have, 
I don't know, 10% or 50% uh, of these 10,000 people on your mailing list, you can just send them a simple email when you launch the second book, hey, the second book is out. You could have that community on Facebook, you could have that community on Twitter, you could have that community on Pinterest, on LinkedIn, et cetera. But the problem with social media is that in most cases, not all the people who uh, are following you are gonna see your message. They're not, they're not gonna get an email about it or a notification that you posted something. If they're looking at their feed at that time when you post and the social media recommends your post to them, then they're gonna see it. But you're losing a huge percentage of people. And with email, you're losing a percentage of people as well because of open rates, but it's something I can control. You can send another email afterwards. Uh, you can work on your open rates, et cetera. So the fact that you have a lot more control over email and the fact that you reach a lot more, uh, a higher percentage of people makes me favor email over any kind of social, of social uh, media platform. But that's, that's my preference. Uh, and I think it goes on, it, it, yeah, it applies to, to the vast majority of authors. Could we spend a little bit of time talking about the legend that is the Amazon algorithm? I've been fortunate enough to see that work in my favor a couple of times. I remember getting an email from the publisher saying, congratulations, you're a bestseller. And it was bizarre because the book went to number one in the historical fiction charts in Canada, despite the setting being 10th century Spain. It's a book about the Caliphate of Cordoba and Al-Andalus as it was in the 950s. And yet for some reason, it went to number one in Canada, which I always found very, very strange. But when I started to look at the charts that it was doing well in, it was very obvious that something was happening behind the scenes. Something was going on to prompt the people that were buying the book in Canada to buy it in large numbers. What do we need to understand about how the algorithm works? It's, it's really hard. The first thing you need to understand is that there's not one algorithm. There are a lot of different algorithms within Amazon. And I think it, it helps you think in terms of visibility spots, right? Uh, so you mentioned your book became a bestseller in a category. Categories are visibility spots. Uh, some readers go to their preferred categories and they look at the top three or top 10 bestsellers in those categories. Based on how a book ranks in a category, it can also get into recommendation emails by Amazon. Check out the number one bestseller in historical fiction right now. So categories are a visibility spot. You also have hot new releases for, for the first 30 days after a book is launched. Your book is in, is in what we call the hot new releases list. And there's a hot new release list for every category out there. So your book, if it was, if it reached number one within the first 30 days, it was also number one on the hot new releases list. And that list is another driver of Amazon recommendations. Check out the number one uh, new launch in historical fiction right now. You can get that kind of email from Amazon as well. Aside from that, also boats are discussed quite a, quite a bit as well. If you go on any Amazon product page below your product information, you're going to get something about uh, customers who bought this item also bought or customers who read this item also read, etc. These for me aren't visibility spots per se, because I don't think readers scroll down and look at these books uh, necessarily, but they're Amazon's way of mapping one book to another. So it's kind of a spider web of uh, relationships between books that Amazon creates. And if your book is the number one also bought of another book, 
then the most likely thing to happen is when people buy that other book, Amazon's going to send them an email saying, you enjoyed this book, you're probably going to enjoy this one uh, because it's the number one also bought to, to, to that book. So it's a bunch of different visibility spots and things that affect the algorithms. Um, and it's really hard to predict whenever you know an email is going to uh, be sent out by Amazon, it's going to propel your book uh, in terms of sales. The only thing you can do is position your book the best way you can and, and keep clean all supports and hope for the best. Your your own book, How to Market a Book, you just, it's, there's a strap line that's overperform in a crowded marketplace. You have very generously said that the Kindle version of the book is free and will always be free. What was the rationale behind that? Um, the rationale was, as I said, um, to make it free to, to my mailing list. A lot of people were asking, you know, for previous editions, and so I can just point them to a link where you can read it, where they can read again everything for free. The other rationale is that we're not. This is a book by a company, right? Um, I authored it, but the purpose of the book is to is to help Reedsy and to help market Reedsy, and we're not looking to make profit from selling a book. Um, we have free courses, we have a bunch of free content, we do free videos, and it's just natural that we have a free book as well out there. Uh, the goal of the book is to make people aware of Reedsy, of what we do, uh, at the same time as we give them a lot of practical advice. And hopefully they check out the things that we do and then they hire professionals on our marketplace, which is the only way we make money, really. So that that was the idea behind making the book free. And also the book's been topping the charts of the free categories and almost all its categories since. So it's been a good move. Before we move on to chapter two, if this podcast has inspired you to write more, or maybe even to write for the first time, then you may be interested in our sister project, The Writing Salon. Its membership is over 200 people strong and features all levels of experience from people who've never written before to people writing for page, stage and screen. We publish anthologies of member-produced work and just like Behind the Spine, find learning opportunities in unlikely places. The salon has been running for several years. Right now, it's a virtual event, but we hope we can reunite in person before too long. Lockdown appears to be easing. It's an active community, and if you're looking for support, it may be just the thing you need. We're on Twitter and Instagram as at The Writing Salon. There's a private Facebook group. Search for The Writing Salon Group. If social media isn't your thing, no problem. We'll put a link to the email newsletter sign-up sheet in the show notes. The writing salon is by writers, for writers, because writing is hard. But now, on with this week's episode. Chapter 2, Independent, but never alone. While we're on the subject of the writing salon, its first anthology has now been written by members and we're looking to get it out into the world. If we did this through Reedsy, we'd have access to literally any kind of professional you can imagine. Experts in editing, proofreading, cover design, illustration, formatting, marketing, website design, literary translation, ghostwriters, and many, many more. I'm telling you all this because self-publishing was once a difficult task, and the quality of the product you got at the end was never guaranteed. But the market has exploded in the last few years. And if you're thinking of going down the independent route... You needn't be afraid. In fact, you should be excited. They're not always easy to access, but all the tools are there. You can hire the very best people in the industry uh, through Reedsy. 
You can also find them sometimes through their own websites, or through LinkedIn. Uh, but yeah, on Reedsy, you have a curated selection of all the industry's best professionals. And here we're talking people, for example, editors who come from the big five, who worked on um, huge author names, who sometimes still work for the big five and freelance on the side. That happens a lot for marketers, for example. Uh, they do marketing at their publishing company, but they freelance on the side. In the case of editing, and this uh, editing is more complicated because they usually have non-competes, but a lot of them leave their publishers to work freelance. And the same thing for go, goes for designers. Uh, like we've got designers who worked on on the covers for Stephen King, uh, Brandon Sanderson, uh, all the all the biggest names in across all all the biggest genres. So yeah, you can definitely create a book with the same level of service as the very best traditional publishers. The only wall garden of uh, of traditional publishers nowadays is access to print bookshops. Uh, like that's the last thing that's really really hard to get for indie authors. If you if your dream is to be in the sh in the window of a Barnes and Noble in the U.S., for example, then that's one of the only reasons probably to really favor traditional publishing at this point. But as consumers, we are obviously changing our buying habits. We are. We are navigating to retailers like Amazon just because it's easy. The amount of bookshops are sadly declining. But I think it's reflective of a number of things um, from a writing perspective. What is your goal? Um, because it would strike me as interesting if you said, I do want to be in the window of, of Barnes & Noble. Uh, I, I could understand that, but that is probably the wrong motivation in terms of being a writer, because we've said this on the show many times, the value of art is whether it finds an audience, not how it finds its audience or how its audience finds it, or indeed how much the audience pays for it. It's whether those two things connect and however that happens is a cause for celebration. If that happens to be because you walk past the window of Barnes and Noble, then, then great. But it's the same product that you buy online. It has the same words. It's not a different product. And you can reach so many more potential readers by independent publishing and, and doing things on Amazon and, ex and trying to exploit the algorithm and all of the things that you mentioned in the book. The audience is so much bigger if you try and address it the way that you're advocating rather than simply being in a shop window, because only the people that walk past the shop window will see it, right? No, absolutely. I mean, for me, being in shop windows, being in traditional bookstores, it's more of an ego boost, an ego boost than than a smart business decision to pursue that. It can become a smart business decision once you've really conquered the digital world and you do a you know a print distribution deal with a publisher to access uh, these readers who who are going to go to bookshops to, to bookstores. But if you're just starting out, I think there's a whole world of readers whom you can find online, all the more since the start of, uh, of COVID-19, right? Our purchasing habits have changed, even in very, very traditional countries like France, Spain, Italy, where book buying behavior was very much uh, traditional and bookstores, et cetera. Even those countries have shifted towards digital. You can imagine countries like the UK or the US uh, where digital adoption was already high. It's, it's a lot higher now. Even traditional publishers whose strength has always been you know, uh, sales to bookshops. Now they're changing their business model. They're trying to reach readers directly. They're focusing on digital sales. 
Uh, they're doing a lot of uh, B2C marketing instead of like business to business, business to bookshop. Um, so now more than ever, I think it makes sense to not necessarily self-publish, but at least do digital marketing. So the kind of marketing that we've been talking about, you know, uh, publishing your retailer presence, building uh, a mailing list, trying social advertising, trying Amazon advertising and doing price promotions and all that stuff that, that I talk about in the book. In the book, I don't talk at all about traditional marketing, um, being in bookshops, buying billboard ads and stuff like that. That's not to say that it doesn't work. Uh, it can work in very specific case scenarios, but it's not gonna be the most effective way to market a book for 99.9% .9 of people out there. Mm, absolutely. The, there is still, uh, no, uh, but I think it is declining, but there is still a stigma about the phrase self-publishing. And I've, I've never really understood it because it is publishing. It's just a different form of publishing and it's no different to a traditional route. And in a way, it can teach you so much more about your reader, your consumer, about the market, about not the art and craft of writing, because that's something that you'll have to learn and develop yourself. And you'll only do that by constantly writing. But you will learn so much more than you would if you were a passive writer going through a traditional publishing route. I have done both. And I have learned much more about my consumer through the independent route than the traditional route it will make you a better writer because you will understand more about your reader and what they want. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. Um, I think the stigma that's still associated to, to self-publishing comes from, from insecurity and from a lot of years where authors didn't have any other option aside from traditional publishing. And you know, there was a sense of security, is my work good enough? And the only answer to that question for decades or, um, or centuries was to send your book to a publisher. And they would tell you whether it was good enough to be out there in the market or not. And that's still there nowadays. It's a stigma that's really hard to, to completely uh, eliminate, even though I think it's limited to a very small uh, percentage of authors. Thankfully, nowadays, there's still that idea of like the only way to really validate your writing or the worthiness of your writing is uh, by sending it to an agent or a publisher who are going to tell you whether it's worth publishing or not. One of the best things about self-publishing is that it's created a lot of uh, niches and it's diversified the kind of books that get published out there because the stigma that's down to insecurity it comes from a perception of authors of like how good their writing is. You know, they're, they're going to think that agents and publishers are going to take on a book because it's well-written and because they've done their art well. But we talked about this before. It's got nothing to do with that. And most of the time, it's got only got to do with the commercial potential of the book. You know, it can, and most agents are going to say it's really well-written. I enjoyed it, but I don't, I wouldn't know which publisher to send this to. I, I wouldn't know if a publisher would acquire this. And if you send it to publishers, they would say, we wouldn't know how to market it. And that's the, that's the real problem. Whereas if you, if you self-publish, even if you have a real, really small market, you know, if, even if your market is people uh, in their mid forties interested in uh, zombie romance, then you can reach that market because you can self-publish your book without spending too much money on it. 
and you can reach that market and make your money back and may, maybe make a little bit more. And then you write a second book and you make more and then you write a series, et cetera. And you can actually make a living out of a super small niche. I know authors who make millions uh, a year self-publishing for super small niches like uh, paranormal, uh, witch, cozy mysteries. That sounds like a niche that almost didn't exist before self-publishing. Uh, it probably didn't. And now you have authors making millions every year just writing books in that niche, writing a lot of books in that niche, but just in that niche. Chapter three, understanding your reader. We've all had strokes of creative genius in our lives, whether we've come up with a killer plotline or thought of the perfect idea for a new non-fiction book. But many people never jump that first hurdle, putting pen to paper. And even if they do, simply chronicling an idea isn't enough, not if you want it to sell. For readers to engage, you have to understand the market and what exactly it is your intended readers are hungry for. Earlier in Series 2, we spoke to Nina Sofia Morales, author of Glossy, the inside story of Vogue. You might remember how she came to me for advice after writing the first draft of her book. It wasn't getting the traction she was after, because although the words and the detail were there, the reader wasn't necessarily front and centre in her mind. Not yet, at least. I told her to, well, completely restructure it, and to be fair, she did. And once that happened, there was an instant change of reaction. She very quickly landed an agent and a publishing deal within months. That's why research into your reader, where they are, what they're interested in, is just as important as the writing. Research is reading other books uh, in your genre and not just reading them for pleasure, but analyzing them. Uh, what's their point of view? Uh, what's the tense? How is the story told? What's the narrative arc? Well, that kind of craft analysis of the books you read and you start identifying tropes among all these craft elements, you know, okay, they're all told, why well, yeah, they're all told in first person uh, from one single point of view. Then if, if I'm writing a YA book that's from an omniscient, car uh, um, omniscient narrator and I want to ship that to agents, obviously no one's going to be interested, you know? And if I insist on self-publishing it because, you know, I want my YA book with an omniscient character, then I'm going to have to work really, really hard at marketing it in order to sell any copies because most readers, they're going to look just even at the blurb. And if the blurb isn't written in first person, they're not going to buy the book. So that's, that's why tropes are so important. And in a way, it kind of lim limits you know, if the creative freedom because if you, if you write in a very specific genre or niche where readers have very, very strong expectations, then you have to produce something that meets those expectations if you want to sell that book, if you want to have any chance of, of success. But on the other hand, you have a lot more niches that are uh, available out there and you can find your niche. If you're really looking you know, to make a living out of writing and you're open, you're very flexible about what you're going to write, what a lot of authors do is they spend a l several years researching. They just research niches. Uh, they download market reports. There's a great company called Klytics that does um, basically analytics on the hottest niches on Amazon and how to succeed in those niches, well, how your cover needs to be, your writing, et cetera. So they, they read those reports and download them and then they settle on a niche and they start writing and they write three books and they rapid release them. That's an extreme way of writing to market. A less extreme is 
I know I, I want to write science fiction. So I'm st I start reading like the bestsellers in, in the science fiction category. I start identifying the tropes. I see that there's a really strong niche around like making this up time travel space opera. So I'm going to create a book that's in the time travel space opera niche, and I'm going to try to hit all the tropes. That's how you write to market basically. And that's, and that's how, why research is really important because without the research, you might spend years writing something you really want to write, like a story that's uh, in your heart and that you need to get out there, but you write it in a form that's not going to be commercial enough. Whereas by having done a little bit of research, you might have tweaked it just a little bit, you know, removed a POV character, changed tense, changed from third to first person, and you might have something that's really commercial, as, uh, as you mentioned in your example. Yes, it can be such a subtle shift. Two final questions, Ricardo, if I may, both on on Readsy. How was business during lockdown? You talked about people shifting digitally online. Was lockdown a busy period for you and the people on the platform? Yeah, crazy busy. Uh, we, we had a lot of growth during lockdown. I think a lot of people um, who stayed at home um, or lost their job shifted to their hobbies, basically. And and they started seeing their hobbies as a way to make money. So we we got a lot of a, a lot of uh, a lot more authors uh, on the platform, whether that's for our courses, uh, our little short story contest that we do every week, or for services on the marketplace like authors looking for editors, cover designers, etc. And that growth has uh, has definitely continued. So um, it's part of what we call the creator economy, the passion economy, people uh, turning to their hobbies, investing more in their hobbies and making those hobbies more professional. And, and it's definitely grown a lot. Yeah. And finally, plans for the future for, for the company, if it's doing well, are you looking to add in more services that, um, that, that you haven't um, had the opportunity to offer that so, so far? Yeah, I think the last the last service we're looking to add is audiobook narration and, and, and all the production services, so mastering, audio editing, uh, proofing, et cetera. And then the main thing we're working on and excited about is uh, we have a free writing and formatting tool called the Readsy Book Editor, and we're making it collaborative right now so that you can hire an editor on Readsy and they're going to work on your book through the Readsy Book Editor with track changes, with commenting, all in real time, or You'll be able to also co-write with other Reedsy authors by sharing the manuscript and write at the same time within the interface, then share with an editor, et cetera. And that tool already exports uh, to EPUB, Mobi, and PDF at the end. So basically, you can have your whole book creation within this editing and formatting within the same interface and a much better looking interface than Word. I'm biased, of course, but yeah. Well, that's why you're on the show. You're allowed to be biased. It's been absolutely fascinating. Ricardo Fayette, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. No, thanks for having me, Mark. A massive thank you then to Ricardo Fayette for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learned? This may be a considerably longer section than usual because I, for one, learned a huge amount. Writing purely for creative reasons and writing as a business, they're two very different things. If you want to write as a hobby, then go for it. But if you want that hobby to pay, you need to find out whether or not there are readers out there who want what you're offering. Is there a gap in the market? And if so, how will you promote and sell your product? Don't worry if you're lacking a high profile or strong social media presence. Agents aren't checking to see if you're followed by tens of thousands of people. At least they shouldn't be. 
They should be looking at the quality of your writing. In fact, if it feels forced and you don't enjoy it, don't even consider social media as part of your marketing. Amazon algorithms can reward you, but don't get hung up on the minutiae. There are loads of algorithms doing lots of intricate things, so it can be hard to predict where your new book will place. Just focus on positioning it the best you can. The possibilities for an indie author these days are endless. You really can create a professional product that stands proudly among those created by traditional publishing channels. So ignore the stigma around self-publishing. It's out of date. It's no longer a thing. The reality is self-publishing can bring you closer to your audience and open a door to sharing work that you might otherwise never have had the chance to release. And if you find the right niche, even a small one, you can make money. And finally, read books from other authors in your niche, not just for pleasure, but with a real analytical hat on. Identify the tropes, figure out what works, and how you can capitalise on those elements in your own writing. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let us know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode and share any suggestions for future guests or discussions. We'd love to hear from you. You can either give us a like and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at Behind the Spine. That's the last episode in Series 2, but don't worry, we will be back later in 2021. Who knows? Maybe even face-to-face. Until then, goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.